pray. Uh, Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for everything you've done for us. I thank you for bringing us all here safely. Lord, um, we come before you today knowing that we need you. Uh, We need you, again, more than our next breath, more than our next paycheck. I pray that you would show us grace and show us mercy and speak through me. In Jesus' name, amen. The Bible says that once we get saved, we receive a new nature. Um, Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, it says, If any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Now, this is a reference to the idea of regeneration. We were once spiritually dead. But now, because of the gospel, we are spiritually alive. Um, This is the point that Paul makes in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. He says, And in you hath he quickened, or made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sin, where in time past you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince and the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. That is, we were once dead, but are now alive. Why are we alive spiritually? Because of what Jesus has accomplished for us. Now, this idea of the the state of human beings being spiritually dead, doesn't this make sense of the world around us? Why are we so messed up as a society? Why are we so hateful? Why are we so violent? Well, the Bible tells us, because we are sinners and because we are dead spiritually, right? This is known as the doctrine of original sin. Now, the doctrine of original sin is empirically verifiable. What I mean by that is all you have to do to see whether or not sin exists in the world and that we're born sinners, is just look around. You don't believe that we were born sinners? Go to children's church. Um, watch the nursery. Um, babysit your grandkids. Um, take a look at your kids. Look at your spouse. All we have to do is look around to figure out that we have a problem with sin, right? Um, Ephesians chapter 2 verse 3 tells us that we are by nature the children of wrath. Now, some of us are natural athletes, right? Um, we, you can run and you can jump and you can dunk a basketball. You can just do that naturally. Some of us are natural musicians. We can um, just pick up any instrument and it just makes sense to us. All of us are natural sinners. Now let me anticipate an objection. Some of you are thinking, well, what about grandma? Yes, your grandma is a sinner by nature. Um, like some of you are grandmas, and I know, I know you personally, and I know that you're sinners uh, just by hanging around you. Um, I hang out with the pearls of wisdom. No, I'm kidding. 
we're all sinners, right? Um, it, it comes easy to us. It makes sense, right? Paul's logic in Ephesians is simple. If we are children of wrath by nature, then it makes sense that we are by nature sinners. Furthermore, Proverbs chapter 22, verse 15 says this, Foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. Now the point here is not that children sometimes make mistakes because they're unaware of the consequences. The point here is that children are natural rebels. They naturally want to do what they want to do, right? Um, Romans chapter 5 verse 12 says this, Wherefore, as by one man entered into the, in, sin entered into the world, and by death sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all men have sinned. Now Paul is saying here, what he's saying here is that since we are all descendants of Adam, who is the first sinner, we have all inherited a sin nature. Right? Are you a descendant of Adam, yes or no? Yes. Um, therefore, since you are his children, you carry his characteristics. How many of you have noticed that your kids carry your characteristics? Like your kid does something wrong, and you nudge your husband, and he says, that's your kid. What do you mean by that? Well, he's acting like you act, right? We are all sinners. The Bible says, for there is none righteous, no, not one. It says, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Everyone has sinned, right? Now, in summary, the point I'm making is, not only are we sinners by choice, meaning sin is what we do, we are also sinners by nature, meaning the definition of you is that you are a sinner. Now, how, however, thanks be to God, praise the Lord, who is rich in mercy, for his great love with he loved us, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4, what does he do? He rescues us from that. He makes us alive spiritually. That is, even though we are sinners by choice and by nature, God loved us so much that he didn't wish and he didn't want us to remain in our sin. He, even though we were dead in our sins, he has quickened or he has made us alive together with Christ. Now in doing this, God has given us a new nature. Right? The fact that we have an old nature, that's a no-brainer. You wake up with you every day. Right? You experience your thoughts every day. It's, it, I shouldn't have to convince you that you're a sinner. But the Bible says that once we get saved, that the Bible gives us a new nature. Right? Um, yes, God saves us from the consequences of our sin. What are the consequences of our sin? The Bible says, for the wages of sin is death. Right? The Bible talks about two kinds of death. There's a physical death, and then there's a spiritual death. And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. Right? However, not only does God save us from the consequences of our sin, when we get saved, God starts that very moment, that very second, to 
progressively save you and to save you over a span of your lifetime from sin's power in your life. How many of you know that sin has power in your life? How do we know that? Well, you keep sinning, don't you? Right? One aspect takes place in a moment, right? We were once dead, but now we're alive. We were once lost, but now we're found, right? We were once enemies, but now we're friends, right? It takes place like that. However, the process by which God saves you from sin's power in your life, it takes a lifetime. How many of you remember that song, um, He's Still Working on Me, right? The song is, it took him just a week to make the moon and the stars, right? And everything in it. However, he's still working on me. I want you to think about that. Think about how bad you are. Everything that you see, God spoke into existence over the course of six literal days. However, it has taken God a lifetime to bring you to where you are spiritually, right? It's taken God, for some of you who have been walking with the Lord for 20 years, it's taken Him 20 years to get you to this point right now. Uh, before we move on, I want to make this point. If it took God 20 years to get you to this point right now, shouldn't we cut some, cut some people some slack who have just gotten saved? Shouldn't we? Right? There's an aspect of salvation that's, that, 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 that takes place in a moment. There's an, also, there's an aspect of salvation that takes place over time. Like we have been brought back to life by the power of the gospel. We've been given a new destiny and a new nature. Right? However, we still have the old nature. We still have the old nature in our lives. That is the reason we still sin. All of this intuitively makes sense. We know from, from observing ourselves that we are capable of some pretty dark things. How many of you have ever caught yourself thinking something, for lack of a better term, can be described as messed up? Right? Like you're, you're at Walmart and you see one of these little bad kids running around being disobedient and causing a ruckus and, and you just want to trip them. Right? Those of you who are like, oh, I can't believe in those. And some of you are like, yeah. <laughs> I know exactly where you're coming from. Now why is it that we have those thoughts? Why is it that we have those inclinations? We're sinners. Yes, we are saved and we have a new nature. But we still have an old nature. Now, a few weeks ago, Brother Scott preached a lesson called Overcoming the Old Nature, right? Um, if you missed it, um, what you can do is you can go to our website and look at our sermon archive. And what you can do, you can watch the video. Um, but you can also download his notes and study along with him as he's as you're watching the video. Now, my purpose today is not to re-preach a sermon, right? Um, however, this week I felt led to come back to this topic. Um, last week I was listening to a song called How Long. Um, 
and in the parentheses, the, the, the subtitle was, How Long Love Constraining to Obedience. Um, the song was about how that the only way that we can live in obedience to Christ is by the love of Christ. Paul says the love of Christ constraineth me, right? Um, the, the song says that he turns what a slave into a son. How does he do that? By changing our old nature. The song says that he turns um, duty in the free church, in the free choice. Like, why is it that we're here today? Nobody is forcing us to be here. You're here because you want to hear from God. Nobody is forced, well, aside from the teenagers, the teenagers, we force the teenagers to be here, right? Um, you're here by choice because this is what you want to do. You want to hear from God, right? Why is that? Well, God has given you a new nature, hasn't he? Um, as I was listening to the song, I, re I remembered um, a book that I had read years ago. It's by a Puritan pastor by the name of John Owen. Um, the book is called Mortification, Mortification of Sin in the Life of the Believer. It was written around 1653. Um, so it's an old book. Um, I know um, every time me and Bob Folden get, get together, we love talking about old dead guys. Um, I love books written by old dead guys. Um, because why? Because we read what they struggle with four and five hundred years ago. And guess what? It's pretty much the same thing that we struggle with today. Um, people back then had a sin nature. I know that some of you older folks like to pretend that sin was invented 15 years ago by millennials. But believe it or not, you're a sinner. Believe it or not, your generation had sins. Right? Your generation struggled with vices. Believe it or not. I, hopefully I'm not breaking news to you guys. But the book was written in, in 1653. Now, I don't necessarily, like, if you want to go out and try to read the book, it's a little hard to read because it's written in 1653. Um, so what I thought I'd do today is I would like to outline some of, the, some of the points that he makes in the book in order to help us. Does it make sense? Um, just because something was rented um, 400 years ago doesn't mean that we can't take it and glean from it today. Does that make sense? So, the book is about the mortification of sin. Now, what is mortification? We don't really use that word anymore, do we? Um, we used to say, uh, in describing something that was distasteful, and we're like, and so-and-so did this, and I was mortified. We don't really use that word anymore. Um, Paul tells us in um, Romans that we are to mortify the deeds of the flesh, right? So when John Owen uses the word mortify or mortification, he means to kill, right? Um, he uses the idea of mortification as a metaphor. Does that make sense? Um, he says this, to kill a man or any other living thing is to take away the principle of all of his strength and vigor and power so that he cannot act or exhort or exert, or put forth any proper acting of his own. Now the point he's making is that Christians should try to kill our old nature. He uses, he uses this language on purpose, and it is violence. 
It is violent. And it is shocking. Now, why does he use violent and shocking language? Because he knows that Christians do not take sin seriously. Do we? How do I know that? Because we're constantly pointing out other people's sins that are to us, well, that's much worse than what I do. What are we doing? Well, we're taking sin seriously, but we're not taking our sin seriously, are we? We're to be serious about sin. Now, he goes further than the terminology that we normally use. Um, we normally, every time we talk about dying the self and, and dealing with the old nature, we talk about this illustration about the Indian and the two dogs, right? Um, um, we, there's, there's a there's an evil dog, and then there's a good dog. Everybody has that inside of us. And, and the person asks, well, which dog wins? And the answer is, well, whoever, um, whoever gets fed the most. Now, which is true, but, but John Owen goes further. He says, not only are we supposed to starve the old nature, he says that we are to actively seek to destroy it. We should actively seek to root out the, the, the spirit and the attitude of disobedience in our life. That is, we are to take sin seriously. Now listen, listen to me. Sin is serious. Like, it is so serious, in fact, that God deals with sin in two ways. By sending people to a godless eternity... And he also sent his son to die on the cross in our place. That's serious. If God takes sin that serious, you should take sin serious. You shouldn't play with it. You shouldn't trifle with it. You shouldn't downplay it. One sin is enough to spend eternity separated from God. One sin was enough for God to send his son to take upon himself the damnation of every human being that has ever lived. In light of this, we should take our sin seriously. That is, I shouldn't just take David Hill's sin seriously. Can you believe the awful thing that David Hill did? Now, David Hill may or may have not done an awful thing that we need to deal with. Right? But the only way that I can see clearly to deal with David's sin is that I have to first take my sin seriously and to deal with my own sin. Does that make sense? Listen to um, some of the things that John Owen says about sin. He says this, either you are busy killing sin, or sin is busy killing you. Either you are busy killing sin, or sin is busy killing you. We are, we are locked in mortal combat with our sin nature. And the problem is, is most of us don't want to acknowledge that we're in a battle. You know the easiest way to lose a fight? Is to not acknowledge that you're in a fight. Now, let's say that MJ and Brian Bader were to get into a fight. Who would win? <laughs> Brian Bader is a big, strong man. MJ is a small little woman. 
right? But let's say that Brian refused to acknowledge that he was in a fight. He would lose like that. We're in a fight. He uses the language of war, doesn't he? Either we are busy killing sin, or sin is busy killing you. He also says this, He that is appointed to kill an enemy, if he leaves striking before the other ceases living, he does but half of the work. That is, if your job is to kill something and you stop before it is dead, then you, have, then you did your job halfway. God has set us on the work to mortify the deeds of the flesh. To actively root out in our lives attitudes that are sinful. To actively root out in our lives thoughts that are sinful. That's the work that we've been giving. Right? He's not saying that we can reach what some people call sinless perfection, right? Which is the teaching that um, some people can reach the point in Christian maturity where they stop sinning. Now, the technical word for this theology is called baloney. I think, I think the Germans pronounce it bologna, right? Um, how do I know that I can't reach sinless perfection? The Bible says, if we say that we have no sin, then what? The truth is not in us, right? Yes, I'm saved. Yes, I have a new nature, right? But I still have a sin nature. And that sin nature still entices me to sin. And guess what? I fall for those enticements, and I take the bait, and I fall into temptation. Our duty as followers of Jesus is to allow him to mold us into his image. This means that we are to cooperate with his agenda for our lives. Romans chapter 8, verse 13, we've, we've quoted it before, it says, For if you live after the flesh, you shall die. If we live after the flesh, we shall die. But then he, he continues, But if you, through the Spirit, do mortify the deeds of the body, you shall live. What Paul is saying here is that we should make it our job we should make it our job, with the Spirit's help, to put to death our old nature. Now, how do we win the war? How do we win the battle? We win this battle through, number one, through faith in Jesus. John Owen says this, he says, His blood is the sovereign remedy for sin-sick souls. His blood is the sovereign remedy for sin. So what does it mean to have faith in Jesus? And what does it mean to use that faith in Jesus as a weapon against the old nature? What does that mean? It means that we, by faith, we hold on to the fact and we remember the fact that we are powerless on our own. Now this goes against our natural inclination, doesn't it? to admit that we can't do something? How many of you have ever tried to help a little kid do something, and what is his response? No, let me do it. I can do it on my own. Right? You're trying to, you're trying to teach him how to tie, a tie, a tie his shoes, right? And he's like, no, I can do it on my own. I don't need your help. 
What's, what's your response? Okay, try it on your own. What, is it, what, is it, what does he do? He makes a, a mangled mess of it, right? Um, the other day, my little niece came over, Aubrey. I think she's five. And she walks into the middle room is where I um, do all of my work. Right? It's, it's kind of my office at home. And I have a guitar in there. And, and she wants to learn how to play the guitar. I'm like, well, you're five. I mean... So I started trying to show her some things on the guitar. She's like, I already know how to do it. Now, what, do you think she's any good at it? No, she's terrible. She's, she may be the worst guitar player in the world right now. That's no offense. Oh, she is, you're, like, the end is that she is five. But, there are, but those little five-year-old Asians that are really good at the piano, she doesn't have an excuse. Why isn't she going to be able to, because she refuses to receive help. She, she refuses to acknowledge something that, that she doesn't know, right? This goes against our natural inclination, doesn't it? We, we try to, before we get saved, we try to work our way to heaven. After we get saved, we try to buy our own willpower and through our own willpower to fight the sin in our lives. And how does that work? Well, we fail at it, don't we? Now, let's look at this from two different angles, right? Let's look at this logically. In other, in other words, let's examine whether it's logically possible for you to fight your own sin. And let's look at this experientially. Does your own experience with you tell you that you can fight your own sin? Let's look at it logically. If we were able to deal with our own sin through our own strength and our own willpower, why did Jesus have to come to the earth and die in our place? For when you, for when we were yet without strength and due time, Christ died for the ungodly. Why did he die for us? Because we were without strength. We couldn't do it. If we could do it, why did he have to come and do it for us? Right? This, this makes sense to kids, right? Um, when... When they're asked to do something by somebody, their first response is, well, so-and-so is closer. They can do it for themselves. But Jesus knows that we can't do it for ourselves. And so what does he do? He comes to the earth and he does it for us. Now let's look at this experientially, right? What does your own personal experience with this tell you? What does your own personal experience with your sin nature tell you? Um, Paul says, Paul again is helpful to us. He says in Romans chapter 7, verse 18, says, For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing, for to will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good, I find not. What Paul is saying here is that he has no power to control the flesh. This means what? That our only hope is Jesus. Right? Faith is Jesus. It's, it's faith in what he has done. Faith in what he is able to do. Right? Faith in what he is able to do if we abide in him. So how do we do that? How do we, how do we win this battle? By meditating on two things. Number one, our own inability 
to fight, our own inability to fight, again, we go back to uh, Romans chapter 7, verse 18. It says, for, for to will is present with me. That is, I know what is right. How many of you know what is right? How many of you have ever been talking to somebody and you said about them, well, they're old enough to know better? How many of you know that you're old enough to know better? We know what is right, right? That is, I know what is right. But, he says, but the power to perform that which is good, I find not. That is, I do not find that I have the power or understanding to fight this flesh. Now, Paul, in Romans chapter 7, he, he's talking about like his personal testimony. And he's talking about how the fact that he had no ability to conquer the envy that he had in his own heart. He tried through the works of the flesh. He tried through law-keeping. And what happened? What did he find? He found that he couldn't do it. On your own, you have no strength to fight. You must constantly bring your struggles to the feet of Jesus, knowing that there is power there. When Paul says, I can do all things through Christ, which strengthens me, surely one of the all things that we can do is this, right? God gives me the strength to fight the flesh. He gives me the strength to overcome the, new, the old nature, right? An example of this is in the example of the prodigal son, right? While he was still in a far country and he was ready to faint, the Bible says, he remembered that in his father's house there was what? Bread enough to spare. Some of us wander from the path of God and we stray. And then we, we find ourselves in a state of wretchedness. We find ourselves in a state of weakness. And then what do we have to do? We have to remember where our strength is. Our strength is with the Father. We have to remember that with the Father and in the Father's house, there is bread enough to spare. There is power enough to spare. There is wisdom enough to spare. Power to do what? Wisdom to do what? Wisdom to understand what God's will is. Power to carry out what God's will is. We are completely incapable, right? However, He is able to do exceedingly, abundantly, above all that we ask or think, according to the power that worketh in us. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20. Where we are weak, He is strong. Where we are foolish, He is wise. You are not going to get anywhere in your Christian life through your own ability. I am, I am unable. Right? I can't even walk, spiritually speaking, without God holding my hand. Remember the words of Isaiah chapter 40, verses 28 through 31. It says this, Hast thou not known, hast thou not heard, that the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, fainteth not, neither is weary. There's no 
There's no searching of his understanding. He gives power to the faint. And to them that have no strength, he increases their strength. Even the youth shall faint and be weary. And the young man shall utterly fail. But they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles, as eagles. And they shall run and not be weary. And they shall walk and faint not. We are unable, but He is able. We have no strength. He is all-powerful. We have no wisdom. He is all-wise. Not only do we need to meditate by faith on our inability and contrast it with God's ability, right? we need to, by faith, create in our hearts an expectation that Jesus will come through. So the first thing is, we need to understand that we're unable, right? But He's able. The second thing is, we need to create in our heart an expectation that He can help. Now, question. Can we, through our own willpower, win the battle against our flesh? The answer the Scripture gives us is no. Your personal experience to deal with this battle proves this to you, right? It's logically impossible, according to Scripture. Right? Will God come through for you? The answer the Bible gives is yes. But the question becomes, do you believe that? The question becomes, do you expect that? How many of you have an unreliable relative? Like if your hand's not up, you're that relative, just so you know. Some of you, I, some, I, some of you didn't raise your hand, so now I know you're not reliable. I can't trust you. Uh, you, you, don't, you don't put anything in this person's hands that you have to count on. Right? The question becomes, do you see God as reliable? Do you expect him to come through? Some of us, if we're honest, we have to say no. Right? We have to say no. Now, let, let, me, let me anticipate an objection some of you might be thinking. Right? You're probably thinking, what ground do I have to build this expectation? Because if we're honest, if we're honest, our battle with the flesh has been rather lopsided. It, it's, it's been marked by defeat after defeat after defeat. And you're thinking to yourself, how can I expect to God for God to help if I've been defeated all this time? Well, the question is, well, the answer is, you've been defeated. You've been defeated because you've been working through your own willpower. Haven't you? God has never been defeated. If we acknowledge, we have to acknowledge that our, our battle with sin is, is lopsided, right? We've lost battle after battle. So how do, we, how do we, those of us who have been defeated by sin for years, how do we expect victory? We create this expectation by fixing it to an objective reality. 
Now remember our first point. What was our first point? Our first point was this. We are incapable of fighting this battle on our own. That means that, is I, that it is either Jesus or nothing, right? Jesus is nothing. Either Jesus is going to save us from this battle between the old and new nature, or we are going to lose. Jesus plainly tells us, without me you can do nothing. Right? So how do we, how do we create this expectation in our heart? By fixing this expectation on an objective reality. You see, Jesus is a real person. You're probably thinking, well, yeah, duh, I know that. But let me go one step further. Jesus is real in the sense, not only in the sense that he was, and that he is, and was in a historical person, right? But he's also real in the sense that he is alive right now. That is an objective historical fact. Again, you're probably thinking, I know that, what's your point? You see, our hope is not tied to a man existed in history and is now dead. We are not putting and we are not pinning our eternal hope in Alexander the Great. Why? He's dead. He was a great man. I mean, great is in his name, right? He wasn't Alexander the okay he wasn't Alexander the eh. He was Alexander the Great. He was a great. He accomplished things that no one has ever accomplished, right? But he's dead. We mention his name in the past tense. This is what Alexander the Great did. However, we talk about Jesus, or we should talk about Jesus, in the present tense. We say not only not only can we point back in the history and say this is what Jesus did, we can also say of Jesus, this is what Jesus is doing right here, right now. Jesus is alive. He is ready to exist. He's ready to assist his people in their battle against the world, the flesh, and the devil. Alexander was great. Past tense. Jesus is great. Jesus, since that he is alive, is more than our example. He is able to strengthen and encourage us right here and right now because he is alive. This means that right now I can expect him to come through. How many of you would expect one of your dead relatives to come help you move. Like, we're, hey, we're going to move to this new house. Um, P-pop. Grandpa. Granddad. Whatever you call it. Grandfather. Whatever you call him. Right? He had a truck. I'm going to expect for him to show up and help me move with his truck. How many of you would, would expect that? Why not? He's dead. However, Jesus is not dead, but surely alive. This means that his power is accessible to me. How is that? Because he's alive. He is ready to help. He is willing to help. He is able to help. Our problem is... 
We don't really believe that. And the reason why we don't really believe that is because we're losing the battle with our flesh. I expect for Jesus to help me. You should expect for Jesus to help me. To help. Well, you should expect for Jesus to help me. We should also expect for Jesus to help you. He's just one prayer away. The Bible says in Jeremiah 33, verse 3, Call unto me, and I will answer thee, and show thou great and mighty things which thou knowest not. Are you in need of wisdom? We go to Jesus. We go to Jesus not just, oh, it's just something that I do. We go to Jesus and we expect him to hear. And we expect him to show up. Why is it that we are losing our battle with our old nature? One, it's because we're doing it through our own willpower. Two, we're not going to Jesus for help because we don't expect Jesus to help. We don't expect it. So how do we create in our hearts this expectation and this longing for Jesus to show up in our lives? How do we do that? We're doing part of it right now. You're showing up. It's here today. Right? You, you, like I've showed up today and I've opened the Bible. Like we've, we've studied the scriptures today. And hopefully during the course of our study of the scriptures, like the, the new man has been enlivened and emboldened in your heart. Right? And the old man has been um, dealt a blow at the feet. He's been wounded. We have to constantly put into our hearts and minds things that will create this expectation, that will create this longing, and that will create this hope. Now, some of you, you might be thinking, well, this isn't very practical. Here's the thing. Christianity, salvation, that's not very practical. Think about it. I'm placing my trust in someone else. I'm placing my eternal destiny in someone else's hands. What is it that we always say? If, if you want something done right, what do you do? That's upside down to the Christian life. I'll do it. I'll handle it. No, you won't do it. No, you won't handle it. You need to be reminded on a weekly basis that your sin is big and your sin is bad. But Jesus is bigger and Jesus is badder. Right? That's, that's the most practical thing that we can hear on a weekend and week out basis. You need Jesus. Expect that he will help you. Expect that he will come through. Put that in your heart. Put that in your mind. Cling to it. Hold on to it for dear life because your life does depend on it. Does that make sense? I'll pray and then we'll get out of here. 
But Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for everything you've done for us. I pray that you help us all to realize that we need you. Help us to realize that we need you more than our next breath, more than our next meal, more than our next paycheck. Help us to grasp on to your promises. Help us to cling to your promises. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.